The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. Marks, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kwame. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's a pleasure, brother. Absolutely. Uh, listeners, I wish you could have heard the conversation we were just having. <laughs> this is great. I kept telling him, hey, Marks, we got to stop. We have to save some of this magic for this interview. So I'm, I'm pumped to share this with you guys. So, um, Marks, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I just sold a company that I grew from one of America's no companies to Inc. 500 fastest growing company, number 383, then Inc. 5000 three times. We sold the most exciting product on the planet ink and toner, business to business, which is like toilet paper. <laughs> Nobody cares unless it breaks in your hands and or you have none and you need some. But we outsold the competition five to one, meaning it would take five of their salespeople to sell as much as one of our salespeople sold. And the reason we did it was because we have a system, presentations, overrides, closes, stalling questions, what have you. But it was changing the mindset from thinking we're salespeople to understanding we're negotiators. And there's a big difference between thinking you're selling something and thinking you're negotiating for something. So we grew it, made myself, you know, decamillionaire, financially independent, had a lot of fun. Then I crashed it, you know, uh, lost it all like a dummy and then rebuilt it a second time, stronger, faster, better by using certain key principles. And here we are today with your amazing audience about to hopefully add some value. Fantastic. Yeah. And this is great. I, I know you will add a lot of value to the audience. Uh, the, the men and women here are, are, are stellar who are listening, and I can't wait to allow you to take us to the next level. And so listeners, you know how we usually do it. We have three main topics that we are going to address, and we are abandoning that format for today because the I, I don't want us to feel restricted. And I think there's so many different directions we could go with the distinction between sales and negotiation. I don't want... Uh, Marks and his experience to to feel too corralled here. So, Marks, I'll just hand it over to you. Where where should we start when we're beginning to understand this distinction? So it's so you know, like I told you earlier, Kwame, it was I was doing okay as a salesperson, right, making an okay living, and you know, and and the mentality, the mindset was, I must convince you of something. Now, if I have to convince you of something, you have this power struggle where you now hold the power over me. You can now dictate how I feel, what I say, what the terms are, because I need something from you. And if I'm needy, then I don't have any persuasive ability. And then I read a book that changed my thinking from, you know, I'm really not a salesperson. I'm much more of a negotiator, which, by the way, is a lot more fun. And it makes the sort of the, the power dynamics equal. I'm no better or more powerful than the other person, but they aren't over me either. And so the change was... It's not, hey, Kwame, will you buy from me? You know, can I persuade you this? It's, of course, you're going to buy from me. The question is, what, when, at what price, you know, and how do we get the terms? Once I made that shift and I started talking to the individual on the phone as, of course, we're going to do a deal if we can negotiate a proper deal, it made me significantly more persuasive. And it took my income from a quarter million dollars a year to over a million dollars a year selling the exact same product. So I believe that negotiation is where it's all at. 
And in fact, I think Roger Dawson said, there is no profession that pays as much as negotiations. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love it. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about this is the simplicity, too, because you you talk about very clearly how it created a significant shift and you can clearly notice the results, the increase in the results there, too, because of that shift. But the shift wasn't too strategic or tactical. It seems like it was all in your mindset. It, you know, it's interesting you say that because when I lost my first fortune, I had to go back and go, what did I do wrong? And I figured that out, by the way. And it's a different conversation. Like a dummy, I made a bunch of mistakes. Somebody once said that you're either one or two or three moves away from greatness or disaster. Not five moves, not 10, not 100, one, two, or three. And it was three moves that made me go from hero to zero like that quickly. But as I came back and thought, you know, how did I sort of grow it the first time? And what can I do the second time? I was taught by a mentor of mine that as a CEO or a negotiator, any position where you can persuade people, you have a role of three. You're the chief strategist, chief builder, chief, uh, team builder, and chief uh, sales officer or negotiation officer. But I realized that before those three roles came in was the mindset. And the mindset I define as what do you hold to be true about yourself and others? What do you believe? Right? And if I, as, an, as a salesperson, believe that I need something from them, then it changes my behavior and it changes my emotions to one set. If I change that belief, a different mindset that, hey, they are going to get what I want and I want what they have and we're going to negotiate it together, then that allows me to believe and behave in a different way. And so it's that change of going from need to equality. Like you talked, I think you, you talked about empathy and you used a different word besides empathy. Uh, in one oh, of your talks, one of your TED compassionate talks. curiosity. Yeah, compassionate curiosity, right? So, and that is, I think, turns off the amygdala, turns on the neocortex, as we talked about, and then makes you go, "Huh, that's interesting." That's a change in mindset for you. The techniques will follow if we change the mindset on top. So, as people go out in your audience and they think about, you know, what am I? I don't care what if you're an attorney, if you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter. You're really a negotiator. Everything you do is negotiations. I had. I, we sold the property on Monday and I had called the Thursday before. And in one conversation, I saved myself $10,000 in th three, four minutes, which went in my pocket. And that was a pretty big transaction. But I hung up the phone and told my kids who were in their late teens, early 20s, look, I was on the phone for five minutes. And I made $10,000. How, how great is that, right? Because a negotiation... And I can give you example after example after example. I signed up for uh, a, a learning course, some another that was supposed to be 1600 bucks. I just asked for a discount, right, Kwame? And I, and I gave an example, X, Y, and Z. And so they gave me a $500 discount. So in one email, say 500 bucks. Now, do I need the money? Not really. Will I take the money? Absolutely. <laughs> but it's the fact that we need to understand that we are always negotiating. Now, someone might say, and you, your audience might agree or disagree with this, is that, you know, Kwame, we hear this whole thing about win-win, and we'll talk about Chris Voss here in a minute, about where he really got his information from and why it's lacking. And, you know, I, I don't want to ask for more than I expect or yada, 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 but hold on a second. Two things. Why would you ever say no for the other person? Don't rob them of that choice. And secondly, they can always say no if they want to. I teach my kids this. I go, look, you know, when you go to the restaurant, ask for a free dessert, you know, ask for something, always ask for more than you expect to get. 
And they go, well, dad, why? Son, not because you want to get something. It's because you're practicing the art of negotiating all the time. And they can say no to you. That's okay. That's not a problem, right? But when you get to that big deal, like you had a pretty big substantial deal a while ago on one of your TED Talks on your business transactions, you're never going to get that deal closed or negotiated if you're not practicing all these tiny little events all the time. That's your mindset, isn't it? You're absolutely right. And I, I, as you were telling it, um, listeners on the podcast, you probably won't be able to see this, but YouTube, you'll be able to see it. I'm just smiling. I'm just grinning the whole time because I, I tell people that all the time. Like in, the, in my book, Finding Confidence in Conflict, I talk about how if you don't have that confidence, it doesn't matter if you know the skills or techniques. It, it doesn't matter because people can, they can feel that, right? And even if you do, um, if, even if they don't feel it, right? Um, you're in a situation where you're less likely to ask too. Like we have to, we have to practice that. I still practice that. I'm negotiating million dollar deals regularly. I'm still practicing this thing, right? And so we have to recognize that it's a skill that we will continue to develop. And and really, again, what we're recognizing too is the interesting psychological dance that's occurring. Because again, you change your mindset to say, yeah, we're going to do a deal. We're just trying to figure out what that deal is going to be, right? And people can sense that, that confidence. And it, in every interaction, people are playing roles. And when you come into the conversation too needy and you give, the, give away your power to the other side with that simple mindset saying, I need you to agree, people can sense that. And then it creates this alpha beta type of interaction where they can leverage you pretty easily emotionally. And when you put yourself on that same playing field. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. People respond accordingly. Agreed. And, and that's why they say in negotiations, most of the books that you and I have read and people that we've learned from say, be willing to walk away. And what that's really saying is have the mindset. Now, I, I like to say, you know, he who cares the least gets the most, right? And because, you know, we you talked about this in your TED talk, and I think you're right on the money about the amygdala, right? Being hijacked by Amy and the neocortex. And so now you mentioned three, you mentioned freeze, fight, or flight, but there's actually two more. There's fornicating and feeding, which I'm sure you knew, but why bring it up in the audience, right? 
So when, when Amy gets triggered, we either eat, we want to go, you know, fornicate, we want to freeze, fight or flight. Well, I don't want Amy, the amygdala, being triggered when I'm negotiating because then that gets me off my game, right? Bruce Lee used to say that if he can get you to react when you're sparring, he now controls you, right? Because he now controls your movement and your emotion. In fact, Bruce had a temper. Bruce Lee had a huge temper. But when he got into a fight, he was always calm until he turned it on, in which case he would do his thing. But he needed to understand that he needed to calm the amygdala down and be present, be in the zone, and be like, okay, well, how do I respond to this? Negotiating is the same thing, right? I want to press your amygdala. I want to, I want to get you to go into the reptilian brain because the only way I can get you to take action is if I hit the amygdala. I can't negotiate with you if you're in the neocortex. So I want the opposite response. On my amygdala calm and relaxed, which is why I do havening and the Wim Hof breathing and all that other stuff, right? To keep training my amygdala, which is why Ray Dalio does meditation every single day, right? So he can train his amygdala to calm down, feel safe, feel relaxed, and think neocortex. But if you look at, for example, the president election, you know whether or not you love or hate Biden or Trump, it doesn't matter. But when you look at how they per perceive and what they're trying to do is they're trying to trigger the amygdala of the same party or the other party. Yeah. Once we trigger that, then we can get them, meaning the opposing individual, to behave or take action one way or the other. We talked about Chris Voss's book which is a pretty good book, but it's like an appetizer, right? Now, what made him great was he took these fundamental principles, right? Mirroring, which he doesn't talk about properly, you know, opening the questions, you know, and labeling, you know, unlabels, all this stuff, which are just basics and they're really profitable and powerful and he mastered them. So that's a better, that's a better strategy, but there's so much more left. It was Richard Bandler, John Grinder, who started a neurolinguistic program, which is where Tony Robbins got all his feel from, who taught the FBI back in the 1970s. Now, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, they were in Santa Cruz and they modeled successful behavior, particularly uh, Milton Erickson was a hypnotherapist, Virginia Satir, uh, Fritz Perlman. And these were people that were doing therapy. Now, in order for you to be persuasive, you have to be a very high persuader if you're doing therapy and you're effective. Because most, most, most therapists are not effective at all. In fact, statistics show that whether you go to therapy or don't go to therapy, you're exactly statistically likely to solve your problem or not. In fact, not going to th therapy is 6% higher likelihood of not solving your problem. Hmm. So they found therapists that were super effective and then they modeled them, which is really just a communication tool, right? How do we get the other person to behave? Now we now know, and I know I'm going fast because I want to cover in a short period of time. We now know that we rationalize with our neocortex the decisions we make, but really it's based on our hypnotic suggestion or upbringing or whatever based on the amygdala or the hippocampus that gets us to behave a certain way. So you as a negotiator want to find out how do I not appeal to logic? How do I appeal to that reptilian brain so I get the other person to see it my way or to do it? This is why you'll see scumbags, and I won't mention their names, although a lot of them wear red suits or were in prison doing stock options, whatever, um, and they will still be persuasive and you know, right? You know what they're saying. You're like, how is this guy saying this to me? But yet emotionally, it's almost like you can't help yourself because the, the, the reptilian brain turns off the neocortex and it starts to affect it. And then look, you know, you make zero actions, me too, not everybody, unless we are emotionally connected to it. This is why people know a lot of stuff, but don't do much. 
So negotiation, from my perspective, is how do I hit that amygdala of yours, right? Which is why FOMO, fear of missing out, is such a big thing, right? Because it triggers the amygdala. Now, people overuse it. After a while, you sort of get immune to it and whatever have you. But what NLP did, which is what we studied in our, in our sales organization, along with hypnosis, a bunch of other stuff, unconscious restructuring, it taught us to communicate through reptilian brain. However, you do it in a way that's ethical, there's integrity, where there's character, and whether you do what is what you believe to be best for the other individual if you're in that position. Right. And so this is the first time we've talked about neuro-linguistic programming on the podcast, which I think is a major oversight, honestly. And I, I want to, to slow it down a bit and actually break down what it is. So for the people out there who don't know what NLP is, what is it that we're talking about here? So there's different definitions of NLP, Kwame. There's, there is the definition by the founders originally, which was a communication model, how language, both internal and external, affect yourself and others, right? So it's a study of language. And then they, they changed it to the study of successful behavior, meaning, you know, if Kwame's a great negotiator, I can then elicit mental strategies that Kwame has inside his brain and then copy him and become as good if I'm, or almost as good as Kwame as a negotiator. But really, it's a study of language, a subjective experience, meaning, you know, how does language affect you? Example, if I say dog, what do you think? What, what, do you, what comes to your brain? Think about a four-legged mammal with a tail, usually friendly, but sometimes not. <laughs> okay. I think of my Doberman, right? So because I've got a Doberman named Zeus, and I've had one, you know, a few shepherds. I used to train for police dogs, blah, blah. So, but the word dog inside your brain has a different interpretation than for me. Now, if I said you Doberman, you have to think of Doberman. So you have two different ways of communicating. One is general, which is sort of hypnotic, and one is specific, which is when you elicit information. Example would be, you know, I'm not really happy with the deal you're presenting me, Kwame. Okay, well, what specifically about the deal are you not happy with? That's then eliciting them to communicate with me so I can see what's happening inside their brain. But if I was to be persuasive, I'd say, look, this is the best deal you'll ever get. Now, I didn't say why or how, but in their brain, they then start to go, well, why or how is it? And they fill in the blanks. So the amygdala takes over. That's understanding how language patterns work and don't work. Example would be, if you look at current President Trump, when he persuades people, he'll say the same thing over and over and over and over again, and it'll be very non-descriptive. You know, believe me, he'll say, believe me all the time. Believe me, believe me, believe me, believe me. Those are suggestions or commands that he's throwing out for his audience to believe him. Now, if you're not his audience, it has an opposite response, which means I don't believe you, I don't believe you, I don't believe you, which is why it's so divisive, right? Which is why people just adore and love him. Others can't stand him, right? Because he uses the same language that persuades one group, dispersuades or unpersuades another group. So NLP is really about studying the experience that's inside the brain of the individual and then learning how to create that experience for them in a way that allows you to persuade them to where you want them to go. That's sort of the layman's version of it. Right. No, this is great. This is great. And for a book reference for people, because I'm a persuasion nerd, everybody on the, on the listening knows that. I, I read a really great book. I think it was Scott Adams. I think his name is the person sure. who did it. Yeah, yeah, it's called Winning Bigly. It was just yep. an analysis of the persuasive tools of Trump. Whether yep. you like him or not, you can. There's there are things that you can pull to understand where and how he was persuasive. And so I, I like the example because 
because repetition is very, very powerful. And so it would have that divisive effect for people who love him, it, was, it would work for people who didn't like him, it wouldn't work. And so when we think about bringing it to our difficult conversations, let's use the example that you gave, where we say, this is the best deal that you're going to get, right? In, a, in a, um, an adversarial type of negotiation, do we run the risk of it having that same divisive impact? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's a great question because, you know, NLP would say, look, you can soften it and say, it seems like this might be the best deal you'll ever get. That's a very sort of, I don't trigger your amygdala, but it kind of goes in there gently and then you get to think about it. But if I want to trigger the amygdala, I would say, look, this is the best deal you're ever going to get. So I think, I think the challenge for the high-level negotiator, right? Because the, the beginning negotiator, you know, you want a half a dozen techniques and you want to just you master them, and, and, which is wonderful. But at the high-level negotiator, you have to decide, do I want to trigger this person? Do I want to get him off balance? Do I want to piss him off? Do I want to make him angry? Do I want to make him sad? So then I can control or reel it in. So it's sort of keeping them off balance. So I would say, yes, if you're just a beginning negotiator, then absolutely don't try it. But if you're an advanced negotiator, you have choices. And for me, you know, I'll give an example. I negotiated a deal, God, two or three years ago. It was a silly little deal. And it was only a few thousand bucks. But I knew the only way I was going to get the other person to move was if I acted angry. Right, because I wanted them to get afraid of what I might do next to get them off balance. Now, was I angry? Of course I wasn't angry. I was totally in control, but I wanted them to think I was angry, but I knew how to recover. You know, it's kind of like if you're, if you're in mixed martial arts and you drop your lead hand, you're baiting him in. But if you don't have that skill set to counter or evade, you're gonna get knocked out, right? right? But if you're just starting out, keep your hands up, right? So if you're just starting out for sure, don't be adversarial. Don't be confrontational. If you've done that enough and you believe that you can, in my opinion, if you can persuade them to get a bit off balance and then bring them back to balance, it's a great technique to use. I'll give you an example. If, if I say something to an opposing individual that triggers them to be angry or whatever the case would be, I now have the capacity to calm them down to soothe the amygdala, to open the neocortex. And by doing that, we build an even deeper rapport. That's fascinating. And you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it's an expert move. It's risky if you don't know how to do it right, you know? And so it, it makes a lot of sense. And with the time remaining, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some, some of the biggest mistakes people make in negotiation. And I know it could be tempting to, to focus on like not listening or something like that, right? The basic level. I, I want something really advanced, something that people often miss. So I think, you know, there's, there's one thing since we're talking about NLP. NLP has two terms called uptime and downtime. So downtime is when you're inside your head. You're thinking, you're talking, you're feeling, you're inside your head. So, you know, the outside world is not as present for you. Uptime is you have no internal dialogue. You're literally outside paying attention to the other individual and or the surrounding environment. So right now, for example, I'm in uptime. I'm not in downtime. If I stop to think or I look up, I go in the downtime, I process them, and then I come back out again. The biggest mistake, there's two that I think. One is people tend to be in downtime. They're not paying attention to what's happening in front of them. They're not getting the sensory acuity. They're not noticing the response or communication has. They're just inside their head. And that's really bad because they might give you a clue. You might ask for something 
and they might wince a little bit and you know you've got the right target, but if you're not paying attention, right? So that's one. And second thing is people are afraid to ask for more than they expect to get. It's basic, but it really is, they're uncomfortable. Oh, gee, you know, what are they going to think of me? You know, who cares? You know, you got to have fun. Now, I understand mentally the dynamics is, you know, we want to please people like you talked about in your TED Talk and want to do all these things. But if you can, A, get out of your head and be present and forget all your techniques. By the time that you're negotiating, it's too late, right? You have to have already practiced your techniques and know your techniques. Just let, let it flow. You know, have a good time. Be in uptime. And number two is don't be afraid to ask when you expect to get. The worst they can say is no. And then you get to ask again. So I read a study years and years ago, right? When I first started, you know, selling that the human brain can only say no comfortably five times. Hmm. And that the average salesperson would take five appointments before they got the sale. So, I, and, and because back then the books I was reading were, you know, appointments in, in person. I was on the phone, right? Appointments in person. So they go five visits, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, got it. And I thought, well, I'm going to create a little number sheet. I'm going to create eight boxes and I'm going to ask for the order eight times. Now, why eight? Because I'm not that bright. So I'd have to do more than five. I figured three more would be fine. <laughs> it's a truth. So I would be on the phone and I'd ask for the order and they would say no. And I would check that little box. And then I'd, I'd say, that's no problem. I'd override, I'd close again. I'd check the box two, three, four, five. By the third or fourth time I asked, they generally would say yes. Now they didn't say yes the first time. They didn't say second, third. By fourth or fifth, or fifth they'd say yes. And I didn't wait for five phone calls, right, Kwame? I was like, I'm gonna do them all right now because I don't have time for this. That's fascinating. That's that's really interesting. And again, it, it goes to one of the most important principles of persuasion that people often overlook. It's persistence. I had a line that I used to say that said the, the following, hey, Kwame, I am really sorry if I'm coming off as pushy or I'm trying to persuade you. I'm sorry about that. that is not my intent. I really believe in my product and my company. And I know that if you just gave me a shot, you'd understand why I believe that. So how about we do this? Give me a shot on just this many. I'll send them this time. You know, they go, fair enough. And they go, well, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, instead of five, can we do three? I would change the terms every time I asked for the order, which is why you want to ask for more. Ask for X, because if you don't ask for more, you can't change the terms. Now, if I say, hey, Kwame, buy my Olipop, buy my Olipop, buy my Olipop, you're going to smack me in the back of the head. But if I keep changing the offer, buy my Olipop and I'll give you, an extra flavor for free or I'll discount that, whatever. If I change the offer every time I ask for the order or I ask for you not to negotiate, even though your amygdala still feels the same way, your neocortex can go, well, you know what? No to this, but this offer I can say yes to. It's completely irrational, but it's the way the brain works. Right. It's, right. So if you ask for more, then you can change the dynamics of the offer. Now, there's something called bracketing, which you and I have known about a thousand times, which is, you know, I asked for this, you asked for this, we're going to meet in the middle. I hate that. Hate it. Hate it. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, it, it's, that's bargaining, not negotiating, right? So don't ask what you think you're going to ask. Ask, make the ask so outrageous. In fact, when I teach sales in my, for my employees, I always get, said, you know, the last one, which is ask for the order is get a no. I never want the yes. I always want you to say no to me first. Because until you say no, we're not negotiating. So right. I, I don't want, you know, people are afraid of the no. I love the no. It lets me know where you stand. See, if, if you say yes, and every book talks about this, I go, oh, I could have done better. Right? Oh, man, I feel like I, I got cheated on the negotiation because Kwame said yes off the bat. 
I always, always want you to say no. In fact, I want you to be offended. What? You got your freaking mind? No way, dude. Now we can play. Now the real process starts, right? Forget about the presentation that I did at the beginning. Now I get to find out what are your needs? What are your wants? What are your desires? And there's three different levels, right? Needs, wants, and desires. I got to meet your needs, maybe your wants, maybe your desires. But if I meet your needs at bare minimum, I'll, I'll persuade you. And I have needs, wants, and desires too, right? So I want to meet my needs, wants, and my desires, not just my needs, but I only want to meet your needs. So until you tell me no and you're offended, now I've triggered that amygdala that I want, that I want sort of showing up to the table, right? Because that's what I'm going to persuade, not your rational brain. So I'm going to go, no, do you have your freaking mind? I'm not going to do that. You're crazy. Now I get happy. I'm calm. I'm relaxed. Now I understand. Okay, great. So now as long as you don't run away or hit me or whatever, right? I now can begin that negotiation process. And no matter what we end up at, you're going to feel that you won because you went from a no that was an outrageous demand that he made to, okay, I can live with this because that law of contrast, right? Between, you know, gee, he wanted $2 million. There's no way, you know, I, I wanted to give him 300,000, but a million is better than two, than, than 2 million, right? So I moved you up $700,000. I mean, and the property we just sold uh, in California, nobody believed we're gonna get to, we sold it for $2 million. No one believed we're gonna sell for $2 million because the cops in the area showed 1.5, 1.6. What do you think we solved it at, Kwame? $2 million. Duh, right? Duh. And in the process, right, I had to teach my, my agent how to negotiate. And, you know, and then I, I called the escrow officer and I said, no, hey, you know, and I, I built rapport. Then I started looking at the fees and asked for a discount. So she gave me a discount. You know, I was all over the place. And the whole transaction took me, I mean, we had the property on the market for a few months. I probably invested time not going to property and, and looking at it. Uh, five hours of my time mm. and I made a, a nice return, right? And every time I pick up the phone or do something, it was instantaneous pay for me, right? right? But, I, but, but I would ask for something that made them flinch. Now, if they ask me for something, I'm gonna flinch too. I'm gonna go, why are you out of your freaking mind? No way, you're crazy. Cause I want them to go, oh no, I'm offended them. I, you know, they're upset, but I'm still calm inside, right? right. But I want them to have, I wanna trigger that, that amygdala. And I want, I know it's the opposite of most people, but I've done, I, I, I calculated the other day, I've done over 150,000 transactions, closes mm -hmm. in my lifetime. You know, selling on the phone, I can do 20, 13, you know, 15 a day, right? And I know people teach, you know, amazing stuff. From my experience, I want that amygdala to show up to the table because if that shows up to the table, then I can soothe it. I can make it my friend, meaning they're amygdala, right? I, and, and I get to play with it. If I do that, then I can persuade them. NLP, going back to circle one, just teaches us language patterns of how to help people see things, feel things, and hear things inside their mind that then will get them to take action. Because at the end of the day, if we looked at one word for negotiating or selling, it's action. I am, as a persuader, I need you to do something, whether it's write a check, make a phone call, it doesn't matter what it is, I need you to take action. If I can't get you to physically do something, then I'm not negotiating the right way. That's right. Well, Marks, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Um, how can uh, the listeners get in touch with you, keep up with your work? Um, just let them, let them know how we can connect. Well, they can email me at marksar at me.com, M-A-R-X-A-R at M-E.com. And, you know, most people won't because they just don't hear it. They'll love it. But if somebody needs some help or wants to reach out, I'm happy. I have plenty of time. That's another topic we can talk about how to, 
achieve more with less. So I will respond to every single email that I get, no problem. I may not be able to help them, but I'll respond. And I'll CC you as well so you can see, Kwame, you know, who, who I reached out and what about so you can kind of learn more from your audience if they, they do so. Fantastic. Marks, thank you again, my friend. Really appreciate it. Thank you, but I appreciate you. But have a great day. You too. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.